Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So today I am talking with Dr. Paula Swindle. You might remember her from our conversation in the fall, sort of introducing the idea of religious and spiritual abuse. She's back to look at the recent uh, revelations about uh, famous Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. There is a link in the show notes to my previous episode with Paula. If you want to start there, you could. You don't have to, but you could start there and get that kind of introduction to what we are talking about when we talk about religious abuse or spiritual abuse. Um, and then also there are links to this article in The Dispatch written by David French and this report itself that Ravi Zacharias's ministry – uh, commissioned by a group of lawyers. And this is like the official record, basically, of what is known. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll explain it in the intro with Paula. 
Um, but many of you have seen these headlines and seen this news that this very prominent guy was engaged in some very bad stuff. So, okay, let's just get into it. Okay, Paula, I think you wanted to start with uh, some not really throat clearing, more like <laughs> good, wise practice as a uh, as a therapist. So what, what, did, what did you want to sort of say to make sure that we're not getting out over our skis here? Yeah, maybe just some disclaimer that, you know, ethically, we are not supposed to be diagnosing people or claiming to treat or know things about people that are not actually our clients. And so talking about something more in pop culture or in the news as this, what we're going to discuss today is, is not us trying to diagnose or even indicate that we know what the experience of any of these people who are actual people, what their experiences are. But I do think it's interesting and worthwhile to look at these events through the lens of religious abuse and to really think about, you know, what their experience might be to use this as a learning tool to understand the experience of religious abuse and the power and all of this stuff that we're going to get into. So I've like for us to hold each other accountable for that as we talk through it, because it's easy to fall into conjecture. But really, all of this is just conjecture and just looking, I think, at the events as they've been reported. Yeah. Briefly, religious abuse and spiritual abuse are are used interchangeably depending on the researcher. Lisa Oakley, whose episode will be airing pretty soon, prefers spiritual abuse. You prefer religious abuse, so we'll use religious abuse today. That's not like too... Totally separate issues, you know, if you're listening, you don't have to figure out the differences. <laughs> and then also, you didn't grow up evangelical, you haven't spent time in the evangelical world, and you didn't really know who Ravi Zacharias was, right? You know, I had heard the name, I had seen a few headlines just come across social media and come across just headlines online, but I was not deep in this, I've never been deep in this world, and I was yeah. not someone who... I think was personally affected or personally hurt or shocked when I heard this news just yeah. because I wasn't hugely in the know with him. So when you asked me to do this episode, I kind of paused and thought, I don't know if I'm the best person to do this having not been in that world. But I thought it might be an interesting take that I could kind of approach it again. These are not our clients, but as I would, if this were a client bringing an experience to me and yeah. just kind of hear what had happened and hear and, and to kind of view it through the story as it's being told to us. And in this case, it's being told to us through the media. But I thought that would be an, an interesting lens. So yes, though, I'm going to trust you to kind of fill me in on some of the nuances and what the experience might be for people who really followed this guy and who really were deeply disappointed and kind of felt personally these things that have come out. Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, I I was not like a fan of his Listeners know I'm pretty skeptical of of almost all of what passes as apologetics in the evangelical world. I, I do – I think that what I do is a kind of apologetics, but it is a, of a different sort. And he definitely is in that kind of mainstream apologetics world, so I didn't pay much attention to him. And increasingly, I guess I, I am unsurprised when these sort of things come to light for anybody who peddles in kind of certainty – or, you know, I, I have my own kind of theories for that world. But once I started reading the stuff, it it was deeply disturbing uh, yes. and actually affected me uh, quite a bit more than I thought it would from my starting more detached point. Hmm. Um, 
but let me give a little breakdown in case people don't really know what we're talking about. You don't need to go read a ton of news stories to listen. I'll give you the the basics. So Ravi Zacharias was an Indian-born, but I think eventually a U.S. citizen, who was a international speaker, writer, and apologist. So he would debate atheists. He would speak to Christian groups about how their faith was reasonable and rational. He died in May 2020, so a little under a year ago. And before he died, there already had been rumblings and a court case about some possible sexual misconduct. I believe the the Lisa Ann, uh, whatever her name is, I have it written down. Lori Ann. Tom- Lori Ann Thompson. Yes. That was, I think, back in 2016, 2017. So three – three, four years before he died. And then after he died, they did a more thorough investigation. And basically, it's bad. I mean, this guy, here's the Cliff's notes. He had multiple masseuses. So he did have back pain and he had massage, which was a treatment for his chronic back pain. But he also very clearly used the privacy of the massage process as a shield from any sort of scrutiny or really observation by anybody outside him and his massage therapist for years and years, at least a decade or two. And so, for instance, he had multiple Thai and Indian masseuses whose basically livelihood he would pay for using ministry funds. And then those people would also, he had a sexual relationship with them. He had some U.S. citizen masseuses that he was inappropriate with. One of them described what he did as rape. Uh, I believe she described it as rape because of the financial connection between the two of them, as opposed to describing it as rape in terms of forcing in the moment physically. Let's see. What else? Lots of grooming, that that word that we're familiar with for all kinds of abuse, especially sexual abuse. Uh, Lots of finance. I think it's important to say he actually owned two of the massage Yes. Businesses. Yes. So it was so there was an additional dynamic of a boss, a spiritual leader, and all that other stuff that we'll get into about where power was coming into play right. on lots of different levels. Yeah. So there's the power of the the money, there's the power of the ownership, there's the power between the the wealthy and poor countries, there's the power of being the head of an international ministry. And he that that ministry slash him were quite wealthy as well because we know that with Lori and Thompson, they he paid a quarter million dollar settlement, for instance. There was money involved. So that that's the Cliff's notes. And and then we can so we can start to get into some of the details of looking at this. You know, there's there's reporting in their podcast episodes and their blog posts about this. What I want to do is focus primarily with you on this religious abuse angle. And so I'm breaking, I'm breaking it into four categories to kind of keep us on track because there's a lot. There's a lot of detail. It's a fairly sprawling situation. So and as you get into it, just for people who are not familiar with it, I do think it's important to say, too, that there were accusations of this while he was still alive, the 2016. But all of the factual stuff that we know to be true, the investigation happened after his death. Yes. So he's not been around to defend himself as things have become more definitive. Right. there, And there are really interesting aspects of that. Like on the one hand, he's not around to defend himself. On the other hand, he had aggressive cancer and did not delete this information. He kept it. He kept all these and, photos until his death. 
Yeah. And not only not around to defend himself, not around to endure the consequences or to right. de- to deal with the consequences and possibly the reckoning of it. Exactly. Also, it's worth noting that the information we're talking about today is only from like limited access to a handful of devices. There are no devices or records prior to like 2010, I think, uh, around there. And also the Lorianne Thompson case, which was settled with NDAs, those were not broken. They did not interview her. Uh, and so <laughs> this is possibly a quarter, 10 percent, 50 percent of of what's out there. OK, so here are the four categories. The sexual stuff itself, which, as we will talk about, constitutes religious abuse by virtue of his position, even though it is maybe primarily sexual abuse. The second category is his interpersonal interactions with those victims. Third is his interactions with the public and the employees of his ministry, his company. And then fourth is internal stuff for the ministry, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. I'll be calling it RZIM. So let's start with the sexual stuff. So he's the leader of a big Christian apologetics ministry. There's more too. They they have some humanitarian stuff as well. So it's a, it's a big giant ministry. And then for him to sexually abuse anyone, this is already religious abuse, right? Yes. And, you know, so for people who maybe haven't listened to the other episode that you and I did, you know, I, I am a counselor and a counseling professor and have done a lot of research on the topic of religious abuse. And I, I do use that term religious abuse because I do look more at the systems, the religious mm-hmm. systems, and often there is a spiritual aspect to that. So I, I differentiate the terms a little bit, and I think we'll get more into that. So I think we can talk about categories within these categories that you've mentioned. So because I break the types of abuse down into abuse that can come from a leader, abuse that can come from a system, and abuse that can come more from the theology or from the beliefs. And so, yes, just by virtue of this man being perceived very publicly, you know, this is not just your local church. This was international. My understanding of this man was very revered. Um, you used the term fan, that you were not a fan, but but he had a lot of fans. He had a lot of fans, yes. Not just followers, but people who really were following him. So just by virtue yep. of being in that position that carries a lot of weight of I'm speaking for God God is on my side. When God says something to you through me, that should that carries more weight than it might than if I said something. Right. Yeah, and and in that sense it's actually more than like your local parish priest abusing you. It's like uh we'll we'll get to some of this when we get to the interactions, but these these phrases that he threw around, you know, uh millions of souls will be at risk if you tell about what's going on. Like no local pastor or priest could credibly say millions of souls are at risk. And depending on your theology, if you basically agree with that, the the weight of that is kind of incalculable. Yeah, he was using his position, you know, as as a leader and as a public figure, but that spiritual angle to groom people for the abuse and to justify the abuse. But then he, yes, he was also using it to cover up the abuse. So there was this re-traumatizing and silencing that came from a spiritual angle as well. Since we're just talking about the actual abuse of, of him in this moment, 
-hmm. Later, we're going to get to the way that RZIM Mm -hmm. dealt with things. But in this moment, the system is sort of sidelined because we're just talking about him and the and the women. But then there is the theology angle and he leans into that. And one of the one of the theological items in there that seems to have the most power to it is this idea of like souls are being saved from hell because of my personal work. Right. Right. Now, I don't I forget from your own research if you had participants who had been sexually abused or not. Uh, or did you not have those? In my particular study, it was there were multiple people who had had who had experienced domestic abuse and marital rape and sexual violence was a piece of that, but it yeah. was a little bit different than this. But it was still using that to justify. So you know what what I what I read and what I was seeing with these particular situations is he would be getting a massage and would start talking to these women about their lives, really elicit a lot of their trauma, hear perhaps some of their financial difficulties, and really set himself up as a trusted spiritual leader who was there to help them, who was there to be a support for them, who, again, could provide some ministry to them. And so you're kind of in the moment. I mean, there's just an automatic trust when someone is presenting themselves as a man of God that, that might not come when someone's just asking questions about your life. And then it quickly turned into the sexual pieces of that. And then the financial piece connected to allowing him to touch these women or allowing him to have sex with these women. And the money was coming from the ministry. So there's all these layers of the spiritual and the religious system being interspersed with the abuse that was happening and how he was just using that to, to, this was his way of getting in and gaining trust and then keeping trust. Yeah. So one of the things that I have written down in my own notes is, you know, I, I had this survey up, which I'm, I'm now taking down as of today because I don't want to put my thumb on the scale. The reason I didn't say that I was looking for basically prevalence of, of spiritual religious abuse is because I didn't want certain people to only take it. Now that we are talking about this in the open, that's going <laughs> to come down. But on that survey, a lot of listeners have taken it. And if you didn't, don't worry about it. There are all these prompts, right? And I'm, I'm asking people, how often in your religious life did you experience these things, basically? And so throughout our conversation, I, I have copied and pasted some of those that are relevant and then to see what that sparks in our conversation. So for instance, you were just talking about the use of ministry funds. And I was thinking particularly about these women who were especially financially dependent on him, largely the Indian and Thai uh, masseuses. And one of the items on the survey is being expected to consult my pastor before making non-religious decisions. That Hmm. this is a, can be a form, it can be a form of religious abuse depending on the person, right? And he was a bad one. So let's call it that. And these women, you know, it's hard to imagine, of course, we don't, this is conjecture, but it's hard to imagine that they had total freedom to live autonomous lives while he was paying for their apartment and or schooling and or huge tips as they, you know, fillet him after massages or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, So that's, that's an angle that, we may not think of, right? This like this pastor, this religious leader being in charge of non-religious aspects of our lives, that that has a 
a religious abuse angle to it because it affects our ability to pursue our faith. Right. And it sends what struck me is this financial piece in being given when it in return for sexual favors kind yeah. of sends this spiritual message of conditional love to you that I'm going to serve you. I'm going to minister to you, but you have to earn it and you oh. have to earn it in this way that may feel really icky to you, may feel really maybe something you don't want to do, but I've got you in a vulnerable position in lots of ways. I've earned your trust. I've made you dependent on me financially, perhaps, you know, which is the opposite of how I've experienced the Jesus that I serve with the unconditional love, that there's not anything we can do to earn it. But he really tied that to these sexual acts in return for continuing these financial favors. That's great. That conditional love, conditional acceptance, that's going to come back in later as well when we talk about how he dealt internally with RZIM employees. So just that's a, a note for later. I just want to quote the, these two sentences from the report while we're here. For example, one therapist reported that Mr. Zacharias spent the first half of their first massage session asking about her spiritual journey and prior abuse. That's already a, a flag. This mm -hmm. set her at ease and made her feel that he cared for her as a person before he later asked to massage, asked her to massage his genitals, end quote. Mm -hmm. So starting with that, you know, yeah, starting with that easing in and and like bringing up these painful things and these personal things like your spiritual journey to manufacture a sense of closeness just so that you can get your ox off, basically. Yeah. And then, you know, for the for the victim, when that shift happens, even though it may seem like it happens very suddenly, you're already set up to question yourself in that moment because you're already trusting this person. And now all of a sudden you're going, oh, I don't know if I should trust them. And that automatically puts you at a what do I believe? What's right? What's wrong? And he's this great man with all this power and perhaps all this money. So, you know, predators are very good at sniffing out those places where they can get in. And so, yes, the fact that he would start out as, I mean, he was assessing sounds like assessing for potential trauma, which makes someone more likely to, to be traumatized again. Oh gosh. Yes. That is so dark. Um, yeah. So, I want to talk a little bit – again, this is conjecture or or at least we're just talking in generalities. This would not be true for all people in all circumstances. But for people that are sexually abused by clergy, I wonder what you have found or what you've seen in the literature about the kind of aftermath that that tends to create for those victims, specifically from this religious abuse angle. Well, you know, we talked a lot in our other episode about the conflation with God and that that some people can pull that apart and see their abuser as separate from God. And some people really conflate that and believe that they were abused by God or deserved the abuse because it came from God. So it must be OK. It must be my fault. Yeah. Um, so certainly there is the potential for a lot of spiritual fallout. There's just all of the the other dynamics that come in any abusive situation with the, the lack of trust, trusting those around you, trusting yourself, and just figuring out, you know, what this means for your place in the system. Because usually it's happening 
in a system that you're a community that you're a part of, that you want to continue to be a part of, that has been good for you in some way. And that's used by the abuser to both groom you for the abuse and then to silence you after the abuse or during the abuse. Yeah. So I I actually copied eight items from the survey (laughs) under this idea of the aftermath uh, you, you've mentioned some of them basically already. I'm just going to read them. And if any of the other ones pop out that you'd like to say something about, just just feel free. So in terms of conflation with God, there's feeling betrayed by God and distrust of God. Uh, there is sadness over the loss of my faith or religious community. So you're talking about how these often this often happens in the context of a community. There's anger upon reflecting on negative religious experiences. There is a lack of spiritual direction or purpose, self-hatred or self-loathing, a lack of self-worth, and feeling isolated. Now, to, to be clear, I'm not just saying these things as they come up to show my, you know, largesse as a researcher. All of these are pulled from the qualitative literature, so the the interviews with victims of religious and spiritual abuse, including, of course, your own work, Lisa Oakley's work, David Ward's work. So this is not to, I'm not trying to cast a positive light on my great survey. I'm just saying we're, we're seeing in real, in real time, in real space, the stuff that we find in the interview literature. Now we're just applying it to this real life situation of Ravi Zacharias and we're just finding these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a great survey. So give yourself credit for that. Thank you. (laughs) And, and certainly, yes, as I hear you talk about that, I hear a lot of the themes that came up in my dissertation and, you know, the one that stood out to me, there's probably several that I like to revisit, but one that really jumped out to me as I heard you talking just now was the sadness over the grief or the potential grief of the loss of the community. And so, so in the middle of that, you know, that is a choice you have to make to continue in the abuse and maintain the community. And so, so it's not always clear that, you know, that it sometimes it's worth it for people in the middle of this. And there are good reasons why people continue in abusive relationships and in abusive systems. Oh, that's interesting. So the flip side of the coin of in the aftermath, the sadness of over the loss of the community, the flip side of that is while you're perhaps being abused, to avoid that grief, to avoid that loss of resources and whatever else your community provides for you, you stay in it. So in anticipation of the loss, you just continue to be abused, basically. Yeah. And, you know, and again, when we talk about predators being so wise at assessing who they can abuse and who, you know, that's all. Often a piece of that is what is that piece where this person needs to remain in the system? Where can I gain power? And it sounds like in some of these circumstances, at least, there was I can gain financial power over them and that will keep them quiet because that's they need that. And this make might make it worth it for that amount of time. But that doesn't stop someone in the middle of that abuse from experiencing all the trauma that comes with it, just because they may feel like they're gaining something out of it. Right. It's Often just that can amplify it. Yeah, it's it's it has some explanatory power at kind of complicating the picture, right? Like we like, you know, this is the old trope of the Ricky Lake show, I'm dating myself or Jerry Springer or <laughs> Whatever. And it's like, why do you stay with him? You know, that that's like the trope is like 
every one of those episodes is like, look at these dumb women who stay with these men. But it's like, no, there are real sort of factors and motivators here. There are real fears about what would happen afterward. People are complicated. And, and so this is just another one of those complicating factors, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, the betrayal piece too, the betrayal piece that you mentioned at the beginning. Feeling betrayed I by think God, it, yeah. Yeah, is huge. And, you know, I, I think... It, I don't know if you use the word power in all of those. Power, of course, threads through all of this. Right. And for people who believe in God, there is nothing more powerful than God. And so to experience betrayal from the most powerful thing in the universe, in, in the whole world, is a really amplified form of betrayal and may just feel really isolating because you already feel powerless in any abusive situation, but you amplify that by this international figure. And then you amplify that by this international figure who represents God. That's just everything gets amplified. Yeah, it's I've been kicking around. I think I texted you this, but maybe I didn't. A metaphor to help explain why religion is both such a force for good and when it goes wrong, like in religious abuse, such a force for, for chaos and destruction and that it's like nuclear fission. So mm -hmm. if you do it right, you can get free electricity forever, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, almost free. It It is like an incredibly powerful life-giving force done correctly. And also you do it poorly, you can have nuclear fallout and destroy everything in a 50 mile radius, every yeah. living thing. And it's like the people before they are abused, so people who don't know or didn't know what was going on with him, and especially if they come into his orbit, what they assume is that they're they're at the power plant. They are blessed to be near yeah. this man who has this power and like runs this power plant and can can pay for all your electricity bills for free, uh, whatever. And then what they don't know is like, oh, actually, the core is about to melt down and they are going to be a casualty of that. That's I, that's a beautiful metaphor. And yes, when it's good, it's so good. When church gets it right, yeah. it can be such an amazing community and such a source of comfort and coping and improve mental health and, sus and sustenance in almost every way. And when it gets it wrong, it's so incredibly damaging. And that the repercussions are so deep and on so many levels. Yeah. Okay. Let's, so we we're sort of straddling both of these first two topics, which is the sexual abuse itself. And then Ravi's interactions with these victims. So we're, we're kind of doing both of those at once. I want to talk specifically about his use of religious language during these encounters so I've got three three little sentences here from uh, this main report, as well as a couple items from the survey. The first one is she reported – one of these victims reported that he made her pray with him to thank God for the opportunity, quote unquote, they both received. Mm. Uh, she said that he called her his reward for living a life of service to God and reference the godly men in the Bible that had more than one wife. So let's stop there at the, those two yeah. things. So especially that second one is an interesting use of scripture to justify something clearly unbiblical and antithetical to the Christian tradition. Yeah, it's so both of these really just make my stomach turn. But that second one in particular 
when I think about him conveying to this woman that she is his reward, it's so dehumanizing to her that he is the one that matters to God, that he is the one that deserves this reward. And she doesn't matter in and of herself. She's not a fully formed human who God also loves and wants to reward. She is only seeing and being told she is his reward, which is supposed to make, I mean, in his mind, I'm sure he thought that was supposed to make her feel amazing because that's how twisted it can, this, when my dissertation was called a twisting of the sacred and it's taking those things and just really twisting them. And I think that's what happened here is he probably thought he was telling her something wonderful and she may have I don't know how she experienced that, but to me, it sounds like the potential to be really dehumanizing, to be seen as only through the lens of being a reward for someone else instead of your own fully formed human. Yeah. So there's a misogynistic and patriarchal sexist lens here. He's the older man in charge. Oh, I forgot to mention, almost all of these women were in their 20s or early mid 30s. Uh, and the the conductor that we know about was from when he was 65 to 75 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So that's another angle. Another power make, dynamic. Power dynamic and another just visceral disgust <laughs> angle as well in, in my own psychology. So there is a there's a misogynistic angle here that I actually didn't pick up on when I when I read this goes to my latent patriarchy that's still within me. Um, uh, which brings up another item from the survey, which is being treated as less than because of my gender. And so there were no men. Of course, he was not, as far as we know, he's not homosexual, not attracted to men. So there weren't any men who were called his reward. And if there were, that would be its own kind of thing and whatnot. But it is that there's just like a, another layer of the gender layer. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's just a message women are set sent repeatedly <laughs> throughout history. So, so yes, that's, that's always there. Yes. Yeah. Same as it ever was. Uh, but hopefully not in the future as the kingdom hopefully of heaven not. comes closer. So this third item here, she warned her, he, she said he warned her not ever to speak out against him or she would be responsible for millions of souls whose salvation would be lost if his reputation was damaged. A uh, couple items I've got here. From the survey, being taught that I would be risking hell if I left my particular church or group. This is a little different. In fact, this is higher stakes than that. You know, that's that's more about, oh, we have it right at this Church of God of Prophecy, Second Reformation, whatever, and and no one else has it right, and you will risk hell. This is like that on steroids. It's like you'll be risking other people's hell for your own telling the truth about me, right? So it's it's actually like a way magnified version of that more still damaging but more kind of pedestrian one that that I put in the survey. Yeah, it's such a manipulation of someone's nurturing heart or selflessness to ask someone to push down their own experience and for them to be able to claim that they've experienced abuse when it means all these ripple effects that's going to affect possibly millions of people and not just, and and from the perspective of their spiritual life, you know, that's a huge responsibility to place on them, not on him, not on me doing this could mm. put all these souls at risk, but you telling that I did this could put all these souls at risk oh. or you pushing back at this could put all these souls at risk. 
Jeez. Yes. That's true. It's like <laughs> uh it's it's a tacit admit I mean I'm laughing because it's so dark uh and I don't know what to do but laugh but it's a it's a tacit admission of the wrongness of it by mm. by putting it on if you talk about it. And and, and so it's it's such double speak because this is the same uh witness that they pray to thank God for the opportunity and that she's the reward. I believe this is the same witness. It's possible it could have been two separate women, but like, which one is it, right? Is it, are you a godly man and you're like a, you're like a modern day biblical character who has more than one wife? Or are you doing something wrong that if it got out would, would lose a million souls? Like, it's weird to think, yeah, this is God's reward and it has to be totally totally private and a secret. Yeah. And that abusers are so often intuitively good at being able to flip that blame and being Mm. able to, because you're right. When we are able to sit here and pull it apart logically, he is admitting this is wrong and no one should know this is happening. But in that moment, he's able to somehow send that message that you would be the one wrong if you brought this forth. And for her to believe it for, for many reasons, you know, again, the power dynamics and the, the, the conflation of him with God and, but also, yeah, probably her nurturing spirit, but for her to truly believe, like, I am now responsible for this rather than this person who's doing this. Yeah. Jeez. Kind of at a loss for words right now, as some of this is, is hitting me fresh and so many thoughts are, are uh, fighting to get out now. I guess I'll go with the notes because <laughs> that's one way to keep it organized. But Sorry, uh, I just had another thought that just came in as we were thinking about this is it's just I don't know where this fits into any of my categories or your categories, but just, you know, the Christian part of me goes, that's, again, just such a narcissistic power. Like this is about me and what I have done, not what God has done. And that I can undo everything that God has done, or you can undo everything that God has done. It's just another centering of himself in this whole narrative. Yeah. It's it's good that you mentioned narcissism. I I think I was kind of saving this for later on with when we've talked about more of the data, but you know, you can never diagnose anybody from afar that is not your client or patient, but the publicly available information would lend itself to a strong diagnosis of narcissism, possibly narcissistic personality disorder. It's the same thing that I think about Donald Trump, for instance, but of course can't diagnose him. I can't diagnose anybody. I'm just a student, but even <laughs> if I weren't, you can't. So we, we, we should come back to that and talk about some of the criteria for that and, and apply it to, to Ravi based on what we know in this situation. I, I remember what I was going to say though, which is that, it reminds me the the thing about him speaking out of both sides of his mouth, depending on the moment, that actually is like a particularly egregious example of what Jonathan Haidt talks about all the time and that I concur with is that oftentimes, most of the time, the reasons we give for our beliefs and actions are not the real reasons we do them, but are like our inner lawyer justifying mm-hmm. our beliefs, actions, desires, loves to ourselves and to others on our behalf so that it seems like that was a reasonable thing to do. And that's why we can say things at different times that don't line up that are not logically consistent because we're not actually making a logically consistent case. Ravi was not telling these women 
the genuine facts of what he thought was going on. He was saying what he needed to say in the moment to get what he wanted and then justify getting what he wanted. Right. And to keep it quiet. And keep it quiet. Right. Which is another thing he needed. Right. So this is what I have to say to justify my actions and to keep them from being discovered, basically. And that is a, a he, he is a gross example of what we all do to a lesser extent, generally not as manipulative as this. But when I tell my wife, oh, I didn't do that because this thing was in the way or, you know, she's like, well, there's always something, Dan. There's always an, some reason you didn't do the thing you said you would do. And I'm not giving her an account of things. I'm just trying to get away from her ire for not following <laughs> up what I said I would do. Right. But then so last point under under this religious language, I have this item in the survey, terror or horror being used to motivate religious decisions. And this item came out of my own personal experience, I think, more so than the literature, but I think it's in there too. I think of it as like hell houses or the way that the rapture and the tribulation and that kind of stuff was used to motivate religious decisions in my upbringing. And that's how I was thinking of it. But this is, an, this is another example of that, of like, can you imagine the terror of you being responsible for a million souls in hell, you know, if you say something about this, that is that's another way of looking at it is he's terrifying. He's horrifying her into silence with this completely unfathomable punishment, basically, or this weight of completely unfathomable guilt. Yeah. Taking something that is already a horrific experience and already a traumatic experience and adding this eternal piece to it. Yeah. So again, kind of amping it up with this spiritual lens layered on top of the trauma that's already there. Yeah. Eternalizing it is another, is like a good way of talking about the difference between like a light bulb, you know, a gen a gas generator and a nuclear core, <laughs> right? Like they're yeah. doing a similar thing, but one of them is supercharged with eternity, basically. And that's not the only reason that religion is powerful. People who don't believe in eternal consequences, nonetheless, religion can still be very powerful in their lives. You know, it's community, it's social support, it's all that right. stuff. So, okay, let's see, where should we go? Let, let's let's bring in Ann Thompson here. So she is the case that came four or five years ago. Here's some of the stuff that she said. She said that he gained her trust as a spiritual guide, confidant, and notable Christian statesman, after which she opened up her life to him to the point where he exercised a controlling influence over her as one with spiritual authority. This influence, she claimed, to exploit her vulnerability to satisfy his own sexual desires. That's quoting from the report. You know, I don't know if there's much to add here that we haven't said, but she she's another example and seems worth kind of chatting about briefly. Yeah, her that whole experience was really interesting to me in that what stood out to me when you talk about religious language is how he demonized her. And I think her husband, who were also making trying to trying to make these claims more public or trying to bring these claims to the attention of his That's organization right. like he used the term wicked he used the term satanic slander and falsehoods yep and so again not just this isn't true but bringing in this really charged 
religious rhetoric that takes like, not just is she a bad person, but she is wicked and satanic. And so if you're a person of faith who wants to be on the side of Jesus and God and not Satan, then if it's, if it's a binary choice, it's going to make that choice pretty easy. So using, you know, not just the language to gain trust on the positive end, but really when someone was trying to speak out about this, to use that amped up spiritual language to put someone in a much more evil role as being against me. Yeah. So this is actually, this is my next point here in my own notes, describing his critics, including the Thompsons and others as nasty people, which by the way, this is post Trump and (laughs) there's no way that there's, no correlation between Hillary as a nasty woman and that's interesting and lunatics who were engaging in satanic type slander and falsehood. And he was able to convince many that not only was he innocent, he was the victim of malicious evil. This is again, quoting from the report. So one of the items in my survey is seeing that anyone who disagreed with my church or pastor was consequently portrayed as evil. So that one's just taken right out of there, right out of the survey. Yeah. So then there's there's three around abuse as it's ongoing, how it relates to the leadership. There's being pressured to forgive an abuser while the abuse was ongoing. That one seems to hold because the abuse continues as long as Ravi Zacharias Ministries is counter suing you for, you know, I, I forget what it was, like libel or something like that some sort of Rico kind of thing being blamed for harm that I suffered rather than blaming those who harmed me. So anybody who buys the party line here from Ravi is blaming the victim of the abuse and letting the abuser go scot-free. And then thirdly, seeing the pastor or group blame the victim of abuse for the abuse itself. So there's, there's sort of victim blaming in general And then there is this separate item, which is slightly different, of seeing that the leadership is engaging in victim blaming, right? And so on the one hand, being blamed is is worse than seeing it. Like somebody who works at RZIM may have experienced the the third item of seeing the leadership do it. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. the Thompsons themselves were themselves blamed for it. That's kind of a constellation of power, ongoing abuse, victim blaming from just three slightly different angles. I'm wondering what you want to say about that. Yeah, I think as I thought about this, it it entered that category of being abused by the system and how the Mm. system can either be complicit in the abuse or add to and become the abuser. So the first thing that you mentioned, read that one again about anyone who questions my leader. Oh, seeing anyone who disagreed with my church or pastor was consequently portrayed as evil. Yes. And so I say this a lot on on the podcast that I co-host, just systems of power need to be willing to engage in constant self-examination, constant self-reflection. Otherwise, it's so easy for something like that to happen, for people just to not be able to to be so blinded by the power of the leader, to not even accept that it could possibly be true. And it sounds like that's what happened here, that this was anyone who questioned that, hey, maybe this actually happened, or maybe we should at least look into this, was very much marginalized, was pushed out of the system or mocked or told that they didn't 
have enough faith or they weren't part of the ministry, you know, so that was how they were able to get through this without investigating this. You know, Robbie never handed over his phones until after his death, you know, and, and all, as you said, all of this was still there or a lot of this was still there. I think he, he had deleted some of the stuff from the particular, from Miss Thompson. Yeah. He but, deleted oh. stuff from the, and, and then he also stopped, he stopped saving certain things after the Thompson affair it is kind of like such a 71-year-old man thing to do, though, to, like, forget <laughs> to go back to the old phones. <laughs> like, I mean, that's kind or of mean, I guess. <laughs> As I think of how I engage in technology. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, right. But like, yeah, let's take let's take that part out where I compare myself to Ravi at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how anybody is going to take it. Um no, but that that anyway, it's 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 not great to laugh about him being kind of senile while he is abusing people. But uh, there is something darkly funny. But at least about it preserved that. some of the evidence and oh, was true. able to give a voice to these women who didn't feel like they had a voice or who didn't feel like they had the power to speak or didn't think there was any way they would be believed if they did. Because this system, his organization, and his followers or or his fans or his those who believed him circled these wagons mighty quickly, yep. mighty quickly and really pushed out any wagon that was saying, well, let's look over here, too. They said, OK, you go look over there and you won't be a part of us anymore. And I know we're going to get to this, but I, I do have to give the organization credit that they uncircled them. Eventually, they did open themselves up to an external independent investigation, and they've made some really concrete steps about some reconciliation or at least reaching out and providing some things. So I know we'll get to that, but in the middle of this, especially around Ms. Thompson's experience, there was so many people who just didn't even want to peek behind the curtain just didn't even want to pull back the curtain at all because there's no possible way that this amazing man of God could do that. And so, so, and you know, the, the lawsuit that you mentioned, he wound up, I think he had sued them and then he, he wound up paying yep. them. <laughs> but of course he had to pay because he's the one who did something wrong. They didn't have to pay. And out of that though, came this non-disclosure agreement, which is still in place. Yeah. And this is probably the one critique I would continue to have for this system, that that's continuing to silence this likely victim, you know, definitely potential victim. And so that's a continued, I think that's possibly continued abuse to continue yep. to take her voice away to be able to share her experience because this non-disclosure agreement is still in place. And lots of people within the system have asked for those in his estate who could release her from that um, to do so. And the state has chosen not to do that. But I saw, I, it might've been one of the Christianity Today articles that just described the system as a toxic loyalty culture. Just that loyalty, that blind following, unquestioning, which can cause so many problems within a system. I can't think about toxic loyalty culture without thinking about Trump either. I mean, that is probably the best possible phrase for his inner circle throughout his entire campaign and presidency and everybody who stayed, who ever became disloyal for a minute was kicked to the curb, including Mike Pence at the very last minute after yeah. five years of faithful service. And, and he so, knew yeah, it. He and knew he, it from the beginning when he said I could kill someone and 
still get elected. He knew yep. he knew that this loyalty culture, this toxic loyalty culture was in place. Yeah. So I want to bring in your system uh, system lens here as well. So this this way that Ravi interacted with the Thompsons and other accusers and critics ended up filtering into the culture at RZIM. So quoting from the report again, Zacharias and key senior leaders were relentless in their mockery and scorn of Thompson. In conversations, they'd take bets on how long the Thompson's marriage would last. A senior leader, Kalra, reportedly mocked younger married staffers who questioned the propriety of Zacharias's leaked emails with Thompson. Oh, yeah? Who are they to doubt Ravi, Kalra said. I'd like to see their marriages 40 or 50 years from now. We'll see how well their guardrails hold up then, end quote. So it's trickling down from leadership to culture to mock these people who turned out to have been victims, right? And so that's interesting. Yeah. Anyone who raises their hand and dares to say, ah, maybe we should check this out, you know, being marginalized, mocked, sent the message that you don't have a voice here, you know, that's abuse breeds in the dark, breeds in silence. That is a key you know, weapon of all abusers is to keep things quiet because they know when light is shown upon things, it's less likely to continue. And so, yes, the ways that the system perpetuated that and engaged in that and silenced people who, you know, weren't even necessarily saying it's got to be true, just saying like, let's look into it and maybe we can prove it's not true or let's examine this a little bit. Let's uncircle these wagons. It just that was a continued abuse that continued silencing not only the victims, but the people within that system who became a different kind of victim. Yeah. If you'd like to support this show, there is a Patreon campaign that is ongoing. It's five dollars a month, but there's a sliding scale if that is really not within your budget at this time. And that's true of a lot of people right now, especially with the pandemic. Um, But patrons do get access to the patron-only Facebook group, as well as at least two exclusive episodes every month in addition to the main show, the main feed episodes like this one. And we're really in a season of some awesome exclusive episodes. Most recently, Jared Pogue talked about his deconstruction-focused therapy practice out of Atlanta. And uh, in just a few days, we'll hear from my friend Josh Montoya, who just wrapped up his master's in psychology, talking about some of the early results from my survey, which has come up here today with Paula, as well as he, uh, Josh, giving me one of the best analogies I've ever heard for the type of religious environment that ends up in a kind of deconstruction process. And, uh, It has something to do with bonsai, but I won't say anything more. You got to listen to hear his incredible analogy. I'll use it in the future, but I'm going to always give him credit. So patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes. Back to my conversation with Paula. So Paula, this seems like a good time to kind of turn into the category three, we're, we're sort of blending them here, 
but now we're talking about more about how Ravi is dealing with people at his own company and the public as opposed to the way he's dealing with his victims. At one point, so he traveled with a personal masseuse for years and years, allegedly for back pain. And uh, several RZIM staff reported, and I'm quoting the report, reported to us that they were concerned about him traveling with a personal masseuse, not because they feared actual impropriety, but because they feared the appearance of impropriety. Uh, I'll break in and say this is like Chuck Smith, the Calvary Chapel guy saying, I've never drank a bottle. I've never drank a, a, a sip of alcohol, and I don't even walk out of the grocery store with soda in glass bottles because people might think it looks like beer. And they'll think I'm buying beer. That's the appearance of impropriety, right? So back to the back to the report. A high-level staff member expressed concerns to Mr. Zacharias about it and encouraged him to stop traveling with her. In response, Mr. Zacharias grew angry and barely spoke to this staff member for a long period of time. He was effectively, quote, sent to Siberia, unquote. As another staff member recalled, their relationship never fully recovered. So anyone who dared... To question that. And, you know, and it sounds like this person, at least the way it's presented, didn't really even necessarily think anything was happening. They were coming from a place of trying to protect him. And, you know, and this is a guy who I think is probably obvious from everything we've said, but followed that evangelical rule of never being alone with a woman. The Billy Graham, Mike Pence rule. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of held himself up that way, but was able to use massage therapy as his way around that of of being able to be alone with a woman in that so just provided cover for that so they were actually using his own rules or his own ideas to kind of say you might want to think about this and it was you know did not like to be questioned and so i've got i got three items from the survey you can comment on any of them feeling special when in my pastor's good graces and feeling ignored when i wasn't being shunned or ignored by my pastor or my church or group and seeing others shamed or shunned by the leader or the group. Any thoughts on any of those? Yeah, I think it just goes back to when one person or one figure or even group of people holds so much power within an organization that, yeah, when when you're in their good graces, it's like the sun is shining on you. And when it's not, it's like the sun has gone behind the darkness and it's the exact opposite when so much power lies within one person at the, when that hierarchy is so clear at the top. So, so it, I think it just demonstrates how that was happening at this organization, how he held such sway and power that one kind of like done with you could really impact an individual so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm struck by the, the quickness and severity of that kind of internal shunning with that with that high level staffer. So this is a person who either was hired from outside or multiple times promoted from within the organization. This is not the male clerk, you know? And so to just be like, that's it. And now we don't have a relationship anymore, really sent to Siberia. There's also a, a, a theology angle here because you can imagine something like this in a regular workplace where, hey, I'm out of good graces with my boss And that's not good because this is my job and my livelihood. And so I'd like to get back in my good graces. But Ravi is an internationally renowned spiritual holy man. And so that's another – that's an additional layer of like, well, what did I do to get out of 
Like if, if you have that kind of spiritual power, this is why the book of James talks about not having favoritism. I think this is one way of thinking about it is that mm. your job as someone in that position is to show Christ and Christ's impartiality, right? To love all. You mm-hmm. have to instantiate that for people. That's your job as a spiritual leader. That's a pastor or a priest's job. Not to play favorites. That's like it's it's uh it's like putting the weight on your bat, you know, that you use to warm up in the batter's box. <laughs> if you watch baseball, it's like mm-hmm. your place as a religious leader is artificially or it's it's adding to the sort of force of your actions and with more power has to come more responsibility to be gentle and compassionate with people. Yeah. I think a couple things, not my finest analogy, but that's okay. No, I think it works (laughs) because a couple things come up for me as I hear you talk about that. One is the conditional love aspect again, Mm -hmm. that when you were unquestioning to me, I, was on your side and therefore God was on your side and God loved you and approved of you. And now all of a sudden I take that back because you met quote messed up, even though we know the person wasn't really messing up. Um, But there's also the ripple effects that come from that, that, you know, word gets around that in, in any system that, Ooh, if you do this, this happens. And that makes it less likely that someone's going to question you going forward. So I think it's, it's both, there's a spiritual impact and then there's just a normal systemic impact of seeing what happens. And that makes it less likely that someone else is going to question and get sent to, to the Siberia that this guy got sent to. So we we see a pattern here with Ravi because the, the conditional love thing is a pattern. He did it with the victims. He did it with his coworkers at his company, his subordinates. And there's also a story that we're not going to talk about. It's less, it's uh, less relevant to our to our conversation, but it is in the the Christianity Today piece that Daniel Silliman wrote, and I heard him interviewed on Bad Christian podcast talking about this. But one of uh, the people that the they spoke to, or that that Silliman spoke to, is this investor guy who really kind of worshipped and looked up to Ravi. It sounds like, and was kind of a yes man. And like when Ravi asked him for fifty thousand dollars to start one of the two massage part parlors, he said, I just didn't even think about it. I just said, yes, of course, like anything to be involved with you. And it sounds like these are the sort of relationships that he really preferred these kind of yes people. And that it, as long as they went along with him, he would give them conditional love and he would shine his light on them. And as soon as they started questioning it, they're out. And you know, you, you find this multiple attestation, right, in different areas of his life, different kinds of relationships, romantic, business, in the organization. And you start to go, uh, there's a pattern here. And that's maybe another angle on the on the narcissism pseudo diagnosis thing, right? Yep. And that pattern continually just leads to him being able to maintain his power, his power in these individual relationships, his power within this organization, his power in the public eye. Yeah. So continuing on the uh, Ravi and his and his organization, we interviewed this quoting from the review report again. We interviewed witnesses within RZIM who were not satisfied with Mr. Zacharias's explanations. And some reported their belief that they were marginalized for raising questions. 
Some staff members reported to us that when they expressed doubts about his story, they were ignored, marginalized, and accused of disloyalty. So this is maybe one step down from the high-level staffer. So now we're at more regular staff, but we're still talking about this kind of trickling down of this culture. And so I'm, I have a couple items from the survey that I could mention, but let, let me get your take first. Yeah. And I don't know that this speaks directly to this stage of the trickling down, but I'm just struck by, you know, this was 2016 that the stuff came out with Lorian Thompson. And if if there had been even a minimal investigation, if any of these voices had been heard, they could have avoided four additional years of abuse yeah. that continued. And how many more women had to experience this? So that just shows you again the importance of listening to some of these voices and yeah and and so it it's the consequence for having a church or christian group setting where questions and issues are not able to be raised this is the the possible aftermath of those situations whether you might not be able to imagine at the time but the fact that you can't raise questions and issues ought to be a pretty big red flag. Why can't we? What 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 are you so sensitive about? So a, a few things from the survey, feeling unable to raise questions and issues, being explicitly taught to distrust my intuitions. This one seems mm. to be at play. Being made to feel like I was crazy or weird for having doubts or questions. This is, I call it the gaslighting prompt. Uh, mm -hmm. And then being shamed by my pastor or by the group for raising questions or concerns. Again, a kind of a, a four-prompt constellation here, slightly different angles. But it's all about this idea of we don't question the authority here. And that's almost always a person. It might be an elder board. Uh, and then it's almost always in a... In a church setting, anyway, there's a theological element to that as well. Maybe you want to. Maybe you should talk about that. How does that weave itself in to these sort of? There's the, there's the there's the raw power keeping. There's that which might happen at a non-religious institution as well. So you could right. imagine this happening at in Trump Enterprises or something. <laughs> but when it's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, how does the theology play into something like this cone of silence? Yeah, I mean, the maintenance of power certainly is across the board. So that final goal in mind. But what came up for me, again, as I hear you say that, is just this suppression of one's own belief and one's own importance to God. Mm -hmm. If you're constantly sent this message that, no, my voice and what, I, and what God is saying through me means more, matters more than what God is saying through you. So this almost, I, I mean, I don't think oppression is too strong a word of this oppression of people really being able to examine their own beliefs. And as you say, intuition, which is one of the ways I believe the Holy Spirit speaks through us and, and being told to not listen to that, but to listen to this person rather than what your beliefs might be showing you. It's, it's just a, all those layers to maintain power, but through someone's beliefs, which are often the most powerful thing. At the possible cost of jumping ahead to talking about reform and like how to avoid this kind of stuff in the future, which is where we're going to end. It strikes me that there is kind of a middle position that it's difficult for me to articulate what would be good. And I want to get your take. So imagine a church situation where – 
they're, they're, it's not that they really don't want questions, but it's more like let's say they're open to questions and they and they do allow for it. But then a group of people realizes that they actually have some intuitions that, for instance, do not line up with the denomination of the church. Okay, so they really want to be gay affirming, but it is a PCA church, and there's you just can't be in the PCA. So we're going to either have to leave the denomination or you guys need to leave and, and find a different church. What about a like what do you think about a middle situation like that where I I am I I recognize the difficult position that leadership in such a church might be put in where they if we're not telling you your voice doesn't matter but we kind of got to do what we're doing. We we actually had this in my in my own life with a small group that we started as a Christian small group and and one of the couples didn't want to talk about Christian things anymore. And mm. we had to be like, I- I'm sorry. Like that's the, we, we talked about the beginning. That's just the purpose of this group. You- you're welcome to get a barbecue night going, you know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> but like, that is what this was for. And that was actually a really tough thing to handle. I don't even yeah. think I handled it well uh, at the time, but like, you know what I'm saying? So what do you think about that kind of a, it's not quite abusive, but it's, it's a, it's a middle situation. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a difference between being transparent about who you are and the transparency is the the key there, right? Being transparent about who you are and inviting questions about why I am the way I am or why this system is the way it is. It's not that you can never question if this system should be, but that I'm willing to have that conversation with you about why, nope, this is a group where we've discussed this or this is where we have come down on in this particular theology. Right. And doesn't make you a bad person for asking that questions, but we're going to be clear about who we have decided to be rather than suppressing the question or making you feel evil for asking the question. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's that transparency piece of being clear about who you are and being willing to engage in the question. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about intuitions because this one comes up a lot. The, the intuition prompt and the gaslighting prompt, right? Like – this one I feel is pretty central to the experience of deconstructing Christians that a lot of a lot of the personal core of what they've experienced is being told that they cannot trust their intuitions that and I would I would throw emotions in there as well so your emotions and your intuitions separate prompts on the survey by the way <laughs> are part of this thing that can be antithetical to the revealed and interpreted truth of the Bible. And the the heart is deceitful above all things would be the, the verse that would be cherry-picked the most often in a situation like this. And then once that is done, that if the questioning continues, then the gaslighting begins as like the secondary approach, which is like, well, you know, why didn't C.S. Lewis have this problem that you have? Or why doesn't your sister have the problem that you have? And you're the weird one. None of us think that that's a problem. Can you talk about it? I know that you've seen a lot of clients who are going through this stuff and you've done research with your dissertation advisor on clinical implications for working with this population. I just would love to hear you riff for a couple minutes on this emotions, intuitions, gaslighting thing that I think is just epidemic in this world. Yeah. Let me riff because my brain's going a lot of different places there. Here, um, you take take as long as you want. This is like <laughs> this is heartbeat stuff for this show. 
So I, you know, the first thing that, again, comes to mind when I hear you talk about emotions and intuition, and and I automatically throw in their logic, because we tend to sit logic up against emotions, even though I think they can certainly yeah. be very intertwined, is just how cool it is that Jesus I think would be able to relate to people all along all of those continuums that mm. Jesus was a model for reacting emotionally. And Jesus was a model for reacting very logically. Jesus mm. was a model for extroverts. Jesus was a model for introverts. <laughs> Jesus was a model for all of these different ways of being in the world. And I just, I find that really cool. So, um, so I think that scripturally just, this is, Christian Paula talking, not necessarily Counselor Paula, that yeah. um, that there are models for where all of that can be important and that any system that tries to demonize any one of those things that says you shouldn't use your brain, just listen to your emotions or your emotions are bad, just listen to logic, I, I would be a little leery of any system that says that. But from the distrust of emotions, you know, any, a key weapon, as I said earlier, of any abuser is to get you to distrust yourself. Because if they can get you unstable in how you trust yourself, then you're less likely to push back and say, this is wrong. Right. This is what you're doing is not right. And I'm going to tell someone if they can get you to continue question yourself of maybe it's my fault. Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Maybe he didn't really say that. Maybe it wasn't really abuse is more likely to keep you silent and more likely to keep you from going to the system. And or if you don't go, if, you know, when we think about how we treat people who do come forward and the just rigorous questioning and that any crack in that is seen as oh, you're lying or, oh, you're making this up. So even this idea that I've got to be fully formed and solid before I go forward, when you've been experiencing trauma, you're not going to feel real solid on a right. lot of things. There's going to be a lot of cracks and things are going to come through. So that's, I think, just one of the major tools of an abuser is to to plant these seeds of doubt within yourself about what you're experiencing. And when you add that spiritual element to that, it's incredibly powerful to think that not only you can't trust yourself, you can't trust what you believe about God. You can't trust what you've been told God believes about you and thinks about you and loves you and affirms you. Yeah. The the self-doubt stuff is where the literature on religious abuse and the literature around cults really converges. Mm. And you just have a ton of overlap there that it, it's that same kind of control aspect. Let me, let me ask you this. For someone who was an abuse victim of someone like Ravi and then it becomes public is in in the therapy room is that like a kind of a beautiful moment for them to to like does that help them restore self-confidence and and you know resting on their intuitions and their emotions and their reason yeah the way i've heard victims or clients say is it makes me know i'm not crazy Anything yeah. that can help you feel less crazy, anything that can confirm what you experienced, you know, it's just it's hard to be that lone voice in the wilderness. And so when you're alone in the wilderness and you hear something, even if it's far away or sounds distorted, you want to go running to it because it's it's something that can confirm your experience and you're not so alone in it. So yeah. I I hope for these women across the world that seeing this I, I hope that that's some of the beauty that comes out of all of this publicity around it, that rather than 
it damaging all these souls. Like he was so the scare tactic that he used that God can take care of those and that this publicity can really be a healing force for these women to go. I knew it. I knew something wasn't right. I knew I didn't deserve this. I knew that, you know, that I shouldn't have had to have dealt with this. So I'm really hopeful that it can be a real healing moment for them. Yeah. So uh, returning to RZIM here. So now we're now Ravi has died in, in our timeline. So we're we're kind of past talking about him until maybe the end. And now we're just talking about the institution and the way that it's acted since his passing. So when we look at the fact that no real investigation took place until he passed away, what does that alone say? Like, again, we're it's conjecture, but from a religious abuse angle, what sort of religious abuse might be implied by that of the board members of the rest of the staff beyond the stuff that we've already said. Do you have any, anything else to add there? Yeah, I, a couple things, you know, I, I think just more concretely, one of the articles I read talked about someone watching his public funeral, one of his victims watching his public funeral that kind of really said, really, people are still saying these amazing things about this guy and I'm going to come forward. I, I think that might have been one of the drips that yeah, got the water was. really gushing. Yep. And so so there's just kind of the, the tension that it brought is interesting. But yeah, I think it definitely speaks to the possibility of just they were released from the fear of the power of this man and felt freer to talk. They knew it just shows you, you know, we read these stories about his enragement at is that even a word enragement his his, his rage his yeah. rage at when someone questioned him and nobody wants to experience that so when that's not there of course it's going to be a little bit easier to talk about that and to you start to see the system break down a little bit without that really strong singular leadership at the top and i think this organization would probably say there wasn't a singular leadership there was a board there were other higher people, but there's, it, it had his name. And I mean, his name was in the the title of the organization. So once that is there, sure, I think it makes sense that when that fear is gone, people are freer to talk. I don't know if that's what happened here, but it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that would make sense. I'm, I'm not clear on the timeline of when his daughter took over as president or whatever. I don't know if that's when he died or maybe when he got his cancer diagnosis, something about that. But she she has now, as far as we can tell, and as far as the report writers can tell, these lawyers, she uh, is entirely um, open to finding the truth and all of that. But she couldn't do that while he was alive. I mean, and I again, that this is really speculating. I'm not speculating on their dynamics, but there is an interesting. There's an additional father daughter layer. There's family nepotism stuff. It's another way of thinking about the power that he had uh, without speculating on their actual, you know, dynamics between the two of them, which we don't know, of course. And, you know, I feel us almost getting a little tunnel vision in discussing him as well, that it's mm. easy for us to sit here and we're really focusing on the abusive part and this aspect of him. But we can't forget that this was a huge organization that employed a lot of people that was supposedly doing a lot of good in the world. Right. 
And certainly there's this fear of if we expose this dark side, is it going to overwhelm the light? And we've got to protect the light. So there's lots of reasons and justifications. There's the fear, certainly, of the power, but there's also the fear of what happens if this does become public. And I just wonder if him... Once he died, there was also a freeing of this isn't going to be the same place anyway. So now we've got a chance to really re-examine a little bit. So I don't want to pretend like that this is that this should have been easy for anyone sure. in the system. There's lots of complicating factors here within the system, within these individual relationships. A hundred percent. But it but it is kind of a microcosm of the entire religious and spiritual abuse conversation, which is like I'm always thinking about, and I know that you are too, when approaching especially more conservative Christians and churches, like how do we use the language? You know, you and I have chatted back and forth about like swapping out the term religious harm just so it doesn't like ruffle feather. Like how do we get people to engage in it? Because there's such a sensitivity and a worry that we're letting a wolf into the hen house so to speak, if we let these liberals in here to wreak havoc with their critical race theory or, you know, whatever it is. But at the same time, of course, the real wolves are in the hen house and they are abusive pastors, right? And mm-hmm. abusive systems of power right. at, at various points. And we don't know where they are. And so this, you know, the work that, that we are doing eventually, hopefully can, show these people and find red flags that lead to investigations that can unearth this stuff earlier. It's, it's like you recognize the impulse there, but in the long run, it is for the health of the church and the religion, more broadly speaking, to root this stuff out earlier and to have less fallout. Right. Right. And so, so this might be a little ranty, but, um, good. I can't wait. (laughs) So on the podcast that I do with my pastor, we Wait, just plug it. What's it? What's it called? Plug it's it. Called Sacred Intersections. That's what I thought um, it was called, but I didn't want to get it wrong earlier. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep, yeah, it's very new, but it's me speaking more from a mental health perspective, and my pastor speaking from that pastor perspective, and she's awesome and amazing. And we just recorded an episode on religion versus spirituality, and that's a topic I've talked about you know, my whole life and and from a counseling perspective too. But one of the things that kind of clicked for me and when we were recording is this idea of how often religious harm or religious abuse occur. Like I think of religion as the institution, the system, the organization, um, and spirituality as something that connects you to something greater than yourself. And for me, those intersect. I practice my spirituality through my religion But I think when religious harm can really happen is when the spirituality piece gets left out of the religion and when the the rituals or the, the religion or the institution or the organization takes precedence over the spirituality or God or Jesus that it's pointing to. And so, you know, as you talk about letting the fox into the hen house or the wolf into the hen house, and I just think about you know, if the house is the belief system, you know, if the house is truly like the ministry that you're trying to do or the work that you're trying to do, that should be able to withstand hens and wolves and foxes. And, and it's not, and it's, it's bigger than all of those things that come into that. Mm. And so, so if that's solid, then it can, then it doesn't, 
let the wolves in, you know, let the wolves in, talk to them, engage with them, because it's not going to change. If you, if you trust the house that you built, it's going to withstand that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I got to keep my metaphors. So it's foxes and chickens and it's wolves and sheep. <laughs> I got to I got to keep a boundary there. Um, so one one more point on RZIM itself before we move to some safeguards thoughts about how to move forward. And there's this is another gender tinged one. So Ruth Malhotra, she was the PR manager. Uh, and I believe this is now going back to the Thompson years, but mm-hmm. but also going at also she became a key player after his death as well in terms of opening things up. And she's actually personal friends with David French, who wrote one of the articles that we've been talking about. And of course, I'll have links to both the French article and the the report itself that we've been quoting from in the show notes. But so she was pushing back taking notes at various points in these meetings as they're discussing some of these allegations. And she said that she was systematically marginalized, maligned and misrepresented to others by key members of senior leadership during her time on the Thompson task force. And when she continued to ask questions, as she learned more about the gaping holes in the original story, Ramsden, who I guess was one of the other board members or, I don't know, president or something, allegedly called her tired and emotional and suggested to the group that she can't handle the stress and pressure of responding to the allegations. So here's another example of being treated less than because of her gender, right? Mm -hmm. So these are stereotypical sexist complaints or claims about women. Anything you want to add to, to this bit? Just using all those buzzwords to discredit her, using all those buzzwords to take away the the power of what she was trying to say and to yeah. weaken the argument. And what just stands out to me as I read the report, as I read about her experience in particular, was that at this point, at least, the appearance of the truth was more important than the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, people were so consumed with let's keep up appearances she was asking for the truth. She was asking for, let's see if we can really figure out what happened here. Let's be willing to examine this system. The people circling the wagons going, nope, what it appears to be, the party line that we really want to continue putting out there is more important than what actually happened. And again, the message that sends to the victims of what you experienced, you know, especially this woman, um, Lorianne Thompson, what you experienced doesn't matter as much as us maintaining this man in power and this ministry that is supposedly doing all this good work. Yeah. So, okay, let's let's end here with some safeguards and stuff, some, some thoughts moving forward. I, I've got a, a nice bullet point list from David French's article. This is how he ends his article. So maybe I'll fill in with his ideas, but let's start with you. So from your research, as you think about this stuff, well, I guess not just safeguards. So let's let's use your three lenses again here. There is the individual, the system and the theology. So David's ideas are mostly about the system and you could fill those in as well. But let's let's go through each of them. So let's start with the individual. What can individuals do? to extract themselves, to push back, to make sure that they're not accidentally. So there's people like Ravi who 
are clearly like wolves. And actually it now appears that he was not like a good guy with some foibles. He was a serial predator and used every tool available to him to make himself look good. I mean, we didn't even talk about the calling his honorary doctorates, real doctorates. And uh, there's a lot of credibility yeah. scandal stuff about claiming brief- he had attended colleges when he had yes. like watched a video. Yes. College. Sat in on a class. <laughs> so he's like Cambridge educated or whatever, that kind of stuff. They're also that. So we found with him, there's a big pattern. Now, nobody like that is going to listen to this episode and want to change. Those people will be caught, and that is the only way they will change. But there are people who are not that and who don't know that they – there are people who genuinely don't realize that they are engaging in spiritual abuse, in religious abuse. Yeah. So what? Any any – let's start with the individual, and then we'll go to the system. Yeah, so from that category of when the abuse comes from a leader, you're right that most of the people that are truly predatory are not going to be listening to this podcast, and even if they do, they're not going to want to – engage in any of these suggestions, but it's, I, I truly believe most people who go into the ministry go into it with a pure heart, totally. wanting to serve, wanting to do good, following a calling that they have. And it's so easy to get caught up in when you get a little bit of power or you get a little bit of money. Most pastors don't get <laughs> very much money, but at this level, when you're right. a televangelist or when you're really, you know, over this international organization, the money certainly becomes an allure. So, so I think it's individually continuing to check yourself, continuing to look at not just the religion, but the spirituality and what your calling was and to hearken back to that in your own discernment, but inviting other people to question you. It's not surrounding yourself by yes people, but encouraging people to call you out. When people do call you out, recognizing there might be a natural defensiveness, but sitting with that and then saying, okay, let's talk through that. So being willing to take feedback and not just take it, but inviting it. So that's something the system can ask of the leader, but the leader should also be offering and being willing to engage. And when they confess small things, that keeps them accountable for big things too. You know, when someone's willing to be scrutinized on their smaller activities, then, you know, that opens up another world. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. It it reminds me of the kind of the yes man and yes woman that Ravi tended to surround himself with. And I actually recently thought of, of this in a smaller way with myself recently thinking like, man, I wish that my wife Jaffrey like really listened to the podcast and like really was like a partner in this work. And then I was like, no, it's probably better that she doesn't. <laughs> like, I don't want her drinking whatever Kool-Aid there is. Like, I think it's good that she could just call me on stuff and is not a fan of my show. Like she doesn't, she's not opposed to it. She would say, yes, it's good work. I'm glad you're doing it. But she's not in it like that. And so she will... She doesn't give me that star treatment or anything like that. And that's ultimately a good thing that I have people in my life, my wife, uh, not least of them, who can be like, Dan, just because you have this podcast, you're you're still being an asshole right now. You know, like you're not (laughs) right. Like and so that's a small but writ large. This is what leaders need is they need people who can call them on their crap. Right. That are not uh, that are not basically on the financial social prestige or any other kind of payroll 
right? Right. Or who are not going to fear retribution or fear losing their job or fear being, you know, expelled from the community and expelled from God's graces, all of those things. Yeah. So that, now that's kind of blending us into the the system here. Um, I'll start with a couple things that David French mentions, like families at controlling heights of organizations have all kinds of weird incentives and, you know, they have incentives for conflicts of interest basically. And so if you do have anything like that, you need really rigorous independent investigations. The family members cannot be involved in those. Same thing for governing boards. Governing boards should be powerful, independent, and transparent. And if you are involved in an organization where there's not the case, that's a red flag. Push for that kind of a change. Non-disclosure agreements we talked about earlier. You mentioned that. He says that these should just not exist, in, especially in Christian ministries. There should just be no NDAs. Uh, we're not talking about protecting technology, you know, uh, intellectual property for Google here. We're talking about a pastor, you know, like this is not a situation where we need to have NDAs. Um, you want to jump in here on some of this systemic stuff? Yeah. You know, the the boundaries piece that you mentioned, I don't know that you use that word, but I think that's kind of what we were getting at with especially family members. I just always believe that people who resist boundaries are the ones that need it the most, you know, or the ones that you need to be careful about. If someone is resisting intentionality around what's allowed to be said, how things are done, how conversations are had, those kind of things are really important. French actually ends with what really could be called a theological claim here. He said, the zeal to protect the leader and punish or discredit the accuser can also rest in a particular brand of arrogance. Quote, my ministry is necessary. Souls are at stake. Look at all the good we're doing. End quote. In reality, God will accomplish God's purposes with or without any of us, regardless of our gifts or talents. And that that's a really nice kind of orthodox Christian pushback to these kinds of claims. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen to that. You know, I also, I don't know if if this is where we're going, but the reconciliation piece or the quote forgiveness piece, just mm. public apologies yeah. when thing when you tear someone down and that happens in public to make reparations in public or to be intentionally about that with be intentional about that within the community can also be something that happens so often, you know, there may be an instance of harm that happens to someone and then the forgiveness piece happens in private or happens in someone's office and then they're not supposed to talk about it anymore because they've forgiven them and then we let them go that's a kind of spiritual bypassing you you might call it right where we're, we're using this religious language to actually just hush something up right and so we say what we need to say in our religious context that people will go along but really we're just trying to get it under the rug and not call any more attention to it and that's not transparent, right? Yeah. And that's using – that's a coercive use of power as well. I thought that French himself modeled this, what you're talking about, this public reconciliation thing. And he – in the piece, he said, look, I wrote a piece about Ravi after he died that I now am slightly embarrassed by. The amount that I praised him, I was aware of some of these things. I have been a Christian journalist since the Laurie Thompson days. And I didn't do as good of a job as I could have and should have to uncover this stuff. And I apologize for that. And I just – I found that so refreshing, 
you know, especially in in the especially conservative journalists of any stripe uh, these days on the right, that kind of thing is so yeah. I don't know, so lacking. Never um, admit wrongdoing. Yeah, exactly. And so I I love that he modeled that, and that felt like kind of a powerful I don't know lesson to me. Yeah, I don't know. Did you read the letter from the board? I didn't too? read the board letter. No, it was it was good. Okay. Um, it also really laid out places that they had messed up and apologized for specific things and s- concrete steps like making someone available to any victims to come forward, someone outside of the organization. So wow. that's someone who's available to anyone who wants to come forward, you know, really took some accountability for the places where they had missed things earlier. It's so interesting to me that this board is anonymous. That this is not a public yeah, board. That's weird. So yeah. I, who, who, who is this board? Who is this two people? Is this, you know, so that's, yeah. that's interesting. I don't know that that's good or bad or in, in between, but. Yeah. Anonymous can work both ways. Like, you know, when they tried to recently strip Liz Cheney of her committee ship in the Senator house or whatever, the fact that it was an anonymous vote meant she kept it. But if it had been on the record, you know, Trump supporters would have crucified the people who voted to keep her instated. So anonymous is not always bad, you know, right. in, in certain cases where. Sometimes you need that protection. Sometimes you do. Yeah. But it is yeah. a, it's an interesting thing. You don't hear about that very often. Yeah. The, the letter said Jesus stands with the victims, you know, oh. so it not only made reference to what had happened with them, but also just some seeming to be some direct steps to help heal the spiritual angle and some yeah. of the trauma that people may have experienced I, as well. I mean, we should also say like the organization decided to hire this law firm to do this investigation. I mean, the only reason that we're having this conversation in at least the, the only reason we have the amount of data we have to have had this conversation is that they did that. That was a good thing. That was the right, right. step. And, and actually we should probably give RZIM in 2021 quite a bit of credit even as we criticize RZIM while Ravi was still at the top. Uh, it will be interesting. You know, I mean, they who knows how much smaller this organization is going to get and if they even survive this whole thing. But now I kind of want them to survive because they're showing that they are the kind of people who can do this well and apologize right. and, and create something healthier in the future. I, I, I don't know that that's how it will go. And I would I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't judge anyone for removing their support, of course. But. Not that I probably would have supported anyway in the first place, but <laughs> just because it's not, as I said, it's not really my thing. But that's really – that's an interesting angle too. It's like, yeah. oh, they're going to like – now they could do good work. That's the – that's you know what? That's the consequences of his actions, right? Yeah, and I I just really – I agree with that so much that I do want to give them credit for as much as it was mishandled in the beginning and as much as – it being handled much better now doesn't take away from that. I do also want to give them credit for really being intentional and taking some very concrete steps, not just a blurb, but a really long, well thought out letter that says what's going to happen. And, and, you know, I also, the same with that spiritual bypass of peace of forgiveness that doesn't wipe everything away. That doesn't, take away the pain of the victims that doesn't excuse anything but it is it's i certainly think it has the potential to be a redemptive story 
and to be a model for how you could do what they're doing now from the beginning, as opposed to having this kind of full circle, having to, to come around to this and do things so poorly in the beginning and then go the exact opposite. And hopefully it will be something that does truly have a healing not just for the system, but for the victims and a model for that for us all. Yeah. I'm going to squeeze one last little angle in here before I let you close us out. David French says that I I would say that this is kind of about celebrity culture and how that causes its own kind of issues. So he says that Christian ministries are populated by leadership teams who derive not just their paychecks, but also their public reputations from their affiliation with the famous founder of the organization. So these other people are admired in part because the founder is admired. They have influence in part because the founder has influence. And when the founder fails, they lose more than just their paycheck. And this is therefore a powerful personal incentive to circle the wagons as was done and defend the ministry, even when that destroys people's lives. And I think of this as kind of one of the consequences of celebrity being maybe inevitably attached to Christian ministries as certain people become famous, uh, whether for good or bad reasons. But it's another flag to watch out for. Perhaps if we were putting together a list of things to be careful about, we would say, look more closely at people who are famous because the natural incentives of those who are supposed to hold them accountable are at odds with the purposes of health, right? That doesn't mean that they've done anything, but the incentives are already skewing worse, the more famous the person is. And so I don't know if you had anything to add on that uh, angle. I just, I just thought that was also an interesting one. Yeah, it may open up a whole new can of worms. I'm not sure from a discussion standpoint, but but yes, it is interesting how much we've talked about Ravi and how little we've talked about the God that he was pointing towards and that he was ministering to and anyone who becomes bigger than the God they serve. And so when you attach yourself to them, then yes, that is. So I think there's maybe this constant pulling apart of the human and what the human is directing you towards. So again, kind of that religious framework versus the spirituality piece that it's pointing towards. You know, as I was preparing for this, I just kept thinking about, is it possible, I I was equating it to other things in pop culture, and can you separate the art from the artist? Mm. You know, like, is can we give him credit for some of the ministry, for some of the humanitarian work, for some of the just spreading word about Jesus? I mean, is that still okay to give him credit for that? The same way, is it okay to listen to Michael Jackson music now? You know, and I've never completely reconcile that in my mind. I don't know the answer, but I think that's an interesting question. And I think especially with issues of faith and ministry and service, we have to, we have to pull apart the the artist or the the minister or the person, the instrument from what is it's pointing towards. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, Paula, I've gotten through everything in my notes. Anything in your notes that you want to talk about before we end this conversation? You know, I think we've covered pretty much everything there as well. I did. I'm not sure where it would have fit in to discuss earlier. He did threaten suicide to. Oh, forgot about that. The, yeah. the woman, the uh, Miss Thompson, 
if she released all of the information. And so that's just an interesting mental health angle and another burden to put on someone. But I think that fits into everything else we've discussed as well. Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, That is something that I think you I guess I don't know this, but my 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 gut would be that you find that more often with people who don't have a lot of power. Right. These are people whose lives have not gone well. and, And you you know, you read about or see it in films like people threatening suicide for if a relationship ends or something like that. It's kind of a trope, you know, in certain kinds of fiction. It's interesting for someone of his stature, although I guess he would have had, you know, it, the the fall. It's it's almost like, uh, you know, Black Friday in the, in the Depression or nine or, uh, you know, the, the housing crash in 2008. Right. It's like the people who jump to their deaths because they realize that, like, Everything in their life was built on this thing that is now going bust mm-hmm. and they're responsible for it. Or perhaps- And while he was alive, he he didn't have to reckon with that. So it is interesting right. to think about um, how he would have responded. You know, I would I would hope he would not have committed suicide. But it right. is interesting to think about, yes, why that was one of the tools that he pulled out and whether right. that was a manipulative threat or whether there was some – sincerity that's a okay that's a really interesting question because if there if there was if it was a if he genuinely had suicidal ideation if he had ever had a plan that is such an interesting i mean it's of course sad but it's also a very interesting wrinkle in this whole thing in terms of his psychological profile but that is again beyond well beyond the limits of what we can (laughs) even confidently speculate about. So we'll just, oh, we were going to talk about narcissism a little bit. I mean, he just fits the profile, right? We don't have to say much. Right. Go look up the traits of narcissism and and you'll see, yes, where all of this fits in nicely. Right. Well, Paula, Dr. Swindle, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We will be in touch shortly as I start looking at the data from the survey. Um, Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Uh, I'm really excited and very grateful uh, for all your help on everything, including including this conversation today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you having me on. And this is this is the stuff I love when we can see the research that we're doing and see how it really applies in the world, see how it really helps to answer some questions about people's possible experiences out there. So I really yes. appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It gets me actually really fired up to be able to do that to, to, of course it is a, it's a tragic situation, but I have so much hope that in taking all this jargon and these clinical examples of, you know, your experience with the interviewees for your dissertation and then your experience with clients over the years, uh, to be able to take that and go, no, 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 this, this kind of explains a lot of what happened here. And so here, you know, then people in a similar situation can put two and two together earlier. Hopefully this is the rubber meeting the road in like the best possible way, which is why I can enjoy talking for an hour and 45 minutes about super (laughs) depressing material and lives being ruined and stuff. I can genuinely enjoy it because it's like, it's like surgery, you know, it's like chemo, right? It's the really hard, painful stuff that has to happen in order for progress to be made. And when we can name it and reflect back these experiences to people who've experienced them, our hope is that that will be healing for them as well. For someone hearing this, you know, if you are one of his victims or a victim of a similar predator experience, I really hope hearing this normalizes your experience and somehow 
helps you to to feel less crazy, to feel less alone, and to know that there's there's healing that can happen. So much of this podcast is really that is kind of the main goal is just to give people language. Uh, and I actually hope that the survey did that for people as well. Give them some language. And of course, when some of those results are reported, as well as the, the so you're deconstructing dot com website, which was basically just initially an idea to be like, you're not alone. Other people have gone through this. Here's what it was like for them. And then it led to the resources page. But it started with just these testimonies of like, these are the feelings people have. And if you're having them, that's normal. It's to be expected. And then oh, a weight can fall off of you yeah. right? as you realize that. All right. Well, we're done. Thanks so much. That yeah, was, thank this, you. This is our my second ending. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> we're Paula. We're really ending this time. We're really ending this time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to my wonderful editor, Josh Gilbert. He is always available for more editing work, and his email is in the show notes. You can check out the Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. Those links are in the show notes. And there's also a permanent link to sewyourdeconstructing.com, resources for people who are kind of new to this stuff and don't really know where to look or what questions people tend to ask. How do you find communities? Uh, are there spiritual practices that help? All that stuff's on the website. And of course, there is a link to my previous episode with Paula, the dispatch article written by David French about Ravi, and the report itself by that law firm. See you guys next week. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.